Hi. Hi. So, We're so excited to be here. It's the weirdest thing podcast. I am Scotty. <laughs> I'm Scotty Milder. And I'm Amelia Amparo, and I'm drinking a mug of hot chocolate, and clearly the sugar is getting to me. Welcome back, everyone. We're here to tell you the weirdest stories we found on the internet. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, we could just dive in. Uh, and I know it's like late. We're recording late. And I know we you have a bunch of stuff to do tomorrow. But do. do we need to talk about shiny, happy people at all? Because I kind of feel like maybe we need to talk about it a little bit. Okay, let's take let's take like a hot seven to discuss okay. shiny, happy people. Scotty and I are very late to the game on this mm-hmm. documentary. Yeah, because um, it came out in like June or something. I at well, least a few months I, ago. Yeah, and it is they. It is the documentary about the Duggar family, which, mm. if you know anything about reality TV, they uh, had that show. I mean, at the end, it was nineteen and counting, mm-hmm. and it was John, Bob, and what's her name? Was Michelle, I think. Michelle Duggar, and they had nineteen children. They were. I don't even know what their actual religion was. So I was kind of reading up on it a little bit there because, like, I was telling you, it is not to like. I don't want to slander my family, right? But like, <laughs> as you know, I talk very frequently about being Jewish. But the fact of the matter is, I'm actually like half of my family are Southern Baptists, mm-hmm. and I, there were things about watching them that I was like, this reminds, like, this is like weirdly reminiscent of like, mm. not to say like my, the Baptists in my family are not out there with the Duggars. I'm not saying that. right. But right. as it turns out, they are, they were like independent Baptists, whatever okay. that means. So I think they're Baptists. They follow like aspects of Baptist doctrine, but they're not affiliated with like the Southern Baptist Conference or whatever. Okay. Probably because they're too fucking weird. They are weird. And <laughs> I, 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 I fully believe in everybody's freedom to practice, you know, whatever religion they want mm-hmm. to practice. If that is how you choose to spend your time and energy in this one life. Sure, go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. My problem is, is that is it, it is whatever this particular sect is. Is it, it's it's a deeply toxic, deeply misogynistic, very patriarchal. very patriarchal, very insular, uh, which of course just leaves you know the vulnerable portions of that community open to like rampant abuse, which is clearly what what Women we saw and in. Yeah, and and which is clearly what we saw in Shiny Happy People. It's what's striking. What struck me about it is because again, they're they're like independent Baptists or whatever, but they're like part of. And I'm forgetting the fucking name of the organization. Then you can look it up if you want. But it's, it's that, like IBPL or something. IBPL. Like that. It's that Bill Gothard guy who apparently yeah. is. That's not a sect, but it's like a curriculum or whatever that like a lot of different types of conservative evangelical Christians will adopt. And it's all about homeschooling, which is essentially all about like, we are going to indoctrinate our children into basically a philosophy that allows us to rape our daughters. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, also it's, it's, (laughs) 
let's be very clear here. It's not, they're not being so like outwardly melodramatically villainous as that. But like I said, it, I think it creates I mean, a it, step or two before that. It creates communities where the people who are most vulnerable, and in this case, it happens to be women and girls mm-hmm. are really left like wide open to abuse. And there's really weird stuff in there that's basically like you as a female should know that at any moment you can be tempting any man. And that yeah. includes the head of your church, your brothers, your own like, father. Literally and so showing you, your ankle is like... Like yeah. Invitation so, to be like fun. Yeah, to be like assaulted. And yeah, it's a it is a it's dark shit. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough watch, but I think it's also it's interesting. I think it's interesting that we watched that and then days later, you know, the news about Danny Masterson mm-hmm. coming out and his, you know, ties to I'm like scared to say it, a certain <laughs> Religion? I'll say it. Come at me. Scientology. <laughs> you're literally like look like you think they're gonna send Zenu to like your house. I don't. Right I don't know, man. They made you know they made Shelly disappear. So I like. And they I do don't put sue. Anything past I mean, them. like allegedly, allegedly. Let's just like no, they don't. don't alle- yeah, no, I'm I mean, saying they don't- allegedly, <laughs> like to protect us legally <laughs> because they are. I'm like people. no blurt. Like bleep that out in the thing because they <laughs> sidebar yeah. they have sued other podcasts. Yeah, well, so. and and we should stipulate we're not saying that the Church of Scientology is behind what Danny Masterson was doing, but there are connections. That's that's what we can say. This um, is the thing, conspiracy podcast. <laughs> the other thing that it definitely made me think of is like if you if you've ever read Under the Banner of Heaven about the fundamentalist Mormon churches. Yeah, I mean the practices are like it's just and and you hear stories about I mean like let's be honest like you hear stories about some of the stuff that goes on in like insular Hasidic Jewish communities and stuff. It's just as soon as you are like we're going to remove ourselves from the world. Yeah, then it just this shit festers. Yeah. And if if you're wondering why the Duggars had 19 children, part of the beliefs of this sector that you basically need to like repopulate the army of God. Yeah, it's the whole quiverful idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's called. There is a, I don't know. I thought this was very chilling. There is a scene where they announce, I think it's their 20th child, right? That mm-hmm. they like go on a morning show and they're like, we're expecting our 20th child. And then they have this TV show. So everything's being recorded and they go into the appointment and the ultrasound tech is doing the thing and she goes you know we can't we can't hear the heartbeat mm-hmm. which is you know uh, ultrasound techs or it's probably not the tech they i think they usually call the doctor and deliver that news mm-hmm. but that's their way of saying like yeah you know you've, you've lost the baby it's stillborn right and it's i know exactly what you're gonna say i don't know it was so weird to see michelle because she goes oh no And I'm not trying to say that she like wasn't sad and I don't, I don't want to buy into write like dramatic conditioning. Like there is a way to react. I'm, I'm not Mm. saying that at all. If you lose a baby, however you react is the right way to react. But it was just, the, well, I think it, was it, just goes, a, it was just a strange scene to me. Well, and it goes along with her affect throughout, like every interview you see of her, is she's just got that, like, frankly, like blank kind of Stepford Wives kind of affect. Yeah. And it's really it's, fascinating, like, because one of the people interviewed in the documentary, who's like heavily featured in the documentary, is one of the older daughters who's clearly broken away. Her and her husband have clearly broken away. Yeah. Yeah. And you can kind of see her. I I felt like I could see her struggling with like an impulse 
to like like it was hard for her to like articulate yeah. her feelings and her anger because you can tell she was just conditioned to yeah you know like more power to her to like she's really like yeah pushed herself to kind of be open about stuff yeah i'm not going to go into what they're talking about in this moment because it involves its own trigger warning Mm -hmm. but they are talking about a a pretty big and intense moment in her life and they're like the documentarians are like asking like how did you feel about that and what was your response Mm -hmm. and blah 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 and it's it is interesting because it's like you say scotty she looks to her husband Mm -hmm. and her husband will answer her and i think it in that moment it doesn't feel like He's like, yes, because I speak, I think he's like, this is a hard subject. So I will like mm-hmm. go to bat for you and speak for you. Right. But there's a lot of times when you even see her, she like looks to her husband and then she'll, she like forgets that she doesn't have to do that. Right. It's like, it's just this ingrained instinct that I don't yeah. think, I mean, I don't know about her relationship with her husband. Like we can't, you know, obviously parasocial relationships, but like, yeah, um, they sure don't seem like he doesn't seem like he's no in any, like he seems like a good supportive. And it seems, it seems like they both broken away from that particular sex because they were away. both yeah they were both clearly in it and and the and you know a lot of i mean if you've ever followed any of the news stories involving josh duggar you can kind of imagine like some of the stuff she's talking about that's difficult yeah it's Ugh. it's yeah, on amazon was, prime it's yeah. four episodes if you want to check mm-hmm. it out i ended up binging it in like one night i i think i did it in two yeah if you do watch it multiple multiple trigger warnings uh there is a lot of like really rough stuff in there but it is also a a fascinating look at a group of people that are so removed from what i think scotty and i's realities are that it's 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 fascinating and like an anthropological right i mean it's like i'm i you know i grew up a little bit close to not that but you know conservative evangelical christianity with my my mom's side of the family but like what they are is something different (laughs) like like you can't like you cannot conflate them with like just christians in general or whatever it's like this is this is i don't want to say it's the fringe because it's clearly this is a big movement but it's it is it's something that's very specific and uh, yeah yeah Okay, let's get on to the good stuff. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> out of the dark and into, well, I was going to say out of the dark and into the light, but mine mine is kind of the borderline story, I guess. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I don't have any sort of cold open or anything. I will just say that my story is actually inspired by Amelia's story this week. hey so I hate that phrase. I don't know why I say it. I hate it. I hate it. And it's a thing when other people say it, I'm like, fuck you. And so I just know that every time I say it immediately afterwards, I'm going. Oh, yeah, this. there's there's a wave of self-loathing that follows. Yeah, up. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. All right. Well, anyway, this week to kind of go along with spooky season without being overly I'm, I'm going to ease. I've got some other spooky stuff coming up that's going to be more spooky. This is kind of easing into spooky season for me. I mean, that's all relative. So let's see. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about the history of the Ouija board. Ooh. So my sources are Wikipedia, an article from Baltimore Magazine, an article from, or actually like two articles from the Smithsonian. One's called The Strange and Mysterious History of the Ouija Board, and one is called Women Who Shaped History. Mm. And then a few websites, robertmurch.com, and that's M-U-R-C-H, kennardnoveltycompany.com, williamfold.com. What? And what are all these yeah, names? <laughs> they're all people who are kind of involved with the Ouija board. And okay. then an old New York Times article, uh, which is titled is Ouija Board Murder to Go to Grand Jury. Oh, okay. 
So let's go back about a thousand years. We're, we're going to rewind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to know kind of where the idea of the Ouija board comes from, we got to talk about the idea of automatic writing. So automatic writing, which is also called psychography, is a claimed psychic ability that allows a person to produce written words without consciously writing. And the idea is that these words are being dictated to you from the beyond oh okay so it's like it's like the artist's pages <laughs> i can see you working yourself up for that sorry <laughs> <laughs> yes uh so you it's are exactly like that <laughs> <laughs> so this goes back to ancient china and when i say ancient china i don't mean actually I mean about like kind of medieval China. 960 to 1279 AD was the Song Dynasty. And this is where you can kind of find some of the earliest example, like written examples of what's called spirit writing. Also in China, in China was known as Fuji. And the idea with spirit writing is that mediums would supposedly receive messages by either spirits or deities. Mm -hmm. This became so widespread in China that it led to a lot of what are called salvationist religions. And what's interesting is you see so we're talking 960 AD in China, which is like on the verge of the new millennium. And then you mm-hmm. see this resurgence, particularly in America, but also in Europe in like the 1860s, kind of get, as we're getting towards the end of the next millennium. So these are all kind of like, it seems like this is all kind of related to millennialism. I think it's called millennialism, which is okay. like, as we approach the millennia, people start getting weird and start expecting apocalyptic things. And you have these like rise of these new mo- religious movements that pop mm-hmm. up. Okay. So you see this happen in China with these salvationist religions. And what that means, these are Chinese folk religions that are characterized by the concern for the salvation of the person and the larger society, um, which is also true of a lot of the new religious movements you see pop up in the united states and these religions usually the founder would claim to be informed by some sort of divine revelation about the path toward salvation and then you get this idea of the automatic writing you know because they're being like some deity is like dictating to them the path Mm -hmm. this is like real handy for cult leaders sure just just to say like god's talking to me see look look what i wrote because that's right from god what's interesting is that these salvationist religions in china kind of overlapped broadly with chinese secret societies and these would include like rural militias and secret fraternal organizations that had been deemed heretical by like the larger society among these secret societies were like the original chinese triads which are essentially in today's day i guess this is like chinese organized crime like you have the yakuza in japan you have cosa nostra and and sicily and you have the triads and like china and hong kong okay and it's just interesting that these grew out of these kind of like salvationist religions but these automatic writing techniques would spread into japan they're said to have been used by the ancient Taoists, as you say, Taoist or Taoist sage, who would who used the teachings what he was being dictated to by the spirits to create kung fu. Okay. 
There Interesting. You go. Now, in the West, um, some of the earliest examples of of like automatic writing or things along this line would be in the 16th century. You have the Enochian language. Enochian is an occult constructed language that was created by an English astronomer and mathematician and occultist and astrologer and alchemist wow. named John Dee. He's busy. <laughs> um, he's very famous. If you if you know anything about the occult, he's very famous in occult circles. He and his colleague, a guy named Edward Kelly, they were investigating magic and through this they supposedly contacted what they called the Enochian angels god sent quote-unquote good angels to them to give them this language so that they could communicate directly it's supposed to be extremely complex it includes information on everything from like how to turn lead into gold how to achieve immortality mm-hmm. it'd be nice like put that shit in english like that'd be fucking yeah. handy Nope. Rude. Interesting thing about John Dee is that he was actually an advisor to Elizabeth I, and he was one of the very first proponents of Britain's colonial project and uh, really pushed the establishment of a British empire, uh, mm. particularly in the New World. So thanks. Thanks, John Dee. Thanks for that. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> um, and then in the 1800s, you have the rise of what's called spiritualism. Now, one thing I discovered in trying to read about this goofy-ass board game is that mm-hmm. this story opens up like 1,800 different rabbit holes. So I'm going to come back to some of this stuff. I really would like to do something on the triads at one point. Okay. I think that's an interesting subject. I'd really love to go deeper into John D. And I'd really like to go a lot deeper into the spiritualist movement because it's super fascinating. But in the interest of time, we're not going to go too deep into it today. So just as a quick overview, view the american obsession with spiritualism like spiritualism had existed it started in europe but it really took off in 1848 in upstate new york kind of around the rochester area this was really kind of driven by the rise of the fox sisters um it was two young girls maggie fox and kate her sister kate maggie was 14 kate was 11 they lived in upstate new york and they claimed to be receiving messages from spirits who would tap on the walls to answer their questions So they said that every night around bedtime, they would hear knocking on the walls and furniture. And over time, they realized this was someone trying to communicate with them. Someone or something trying to communicate. They managed to convince their mother of this. Their mother then went next door, grabbed a neighbor and said, come check this out. And so the neighbor came over and watched as the girl sat on the bed and they started the quote demonstration. Okay. Which is, I think they started hearing the knocking and the girls were like, interpreting again rabbit hole i'm not gonna go down there's a lot of questions about the fox sisters was it a hoax was it not i'll probably i may do that story at some point in the future but what's important is that this happened at a time in new york it was what it was called the burnt over area of new york and what this means is that the the flames of religion were burning over through new york at this time and a lot of like new religious movements and millennialist movements were popping up in New York at the time, including mm. Mormonism. And if you look at the history of Mormonism and you know Joseph Smith decoding the tablets, the golden tablets, this could also be seen as a form of automatic writing. You also see like the rise of Seventh-day Adventists at this area. So this okay. is an area of New York that was just, it was pretty rural. It was not, I think, not very educated. There was not a lot of like official religious authority there so it just was this hotbed of like everyone in your neighbor could be like i'm a prophet and i'm hearing from god you know right and so the fox sisters and their weird communication with whatever was knocking on the walls is kind of like 
part of the context of that. So they started going from like house to house all around this area of New York and demonstrating this. And they became super famous, at least in the area. They were very well known. There were newspaper articles about them. And this really just led to this explosion of interest in spiritualism. It continued to get even more popularity in the U.S. in the years after the Civil War. It kind of makes sense if you think about, you know, a lot of people had lost family members. So mediums were being contacted to supposedly give survivors an opportunity to talk to their lost loved ones. Mm. Now, one thing that's interesting about spiritual, like, you can look at this in terms of the occult. And you see, like, the history, like, as the Ouija board develops over time and the mythology around the Ouija, it's really seen as, like, an occultist thing today. But at the time, these spiritualist practices were seen as like just being an offshoot of Christianity. Like they were not seen as being in any sort of conflict with Christian dogma. So it was like, you could go to a seance on Saturday night and then go to church on Sunday night. And it was seen as just like all kind of part of the same thing. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, you look like you have questions about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I do, because now it's like, you know, like now that stuff would be seen as like in the realm of magic, which is clearly like in the realm of the devil. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. And there's like a lot more detail I could go into about. And again, I'll, I'll probably cover some of this stuff down the road, but like, Spiritualism became so mainstream that it made its way into the White House. Mary Todd Lincoln famously conducted seances to contact her 11-year-old son who had died of fever in 1862. So this is from a historian named Robert Murch who has been researching the history of the Ouija board for like 30-some years. He says... Quote, communicating with the dead was common. It wasn't seen as bizarre or weird. It's hard to imagine that now. We look at that and think, why are you opening the gates of hell? So kind of going like with what you were just saying, it's like definitely changes the way these things were seen. Well, I think that that's interesting, right? Because like technically you can commune with the dead or (laughs) you can be in communication with like demons and like that kind of stuff. And those are two Mm -hmm. different things. Mm -hmm. Like the spirits of the people who have passed one thing falls in with like, you know, Christian ideology of like the beyond and, and, and that's talking to me from heaven. Yeah. Right. They're talking to me from heaven. Hopefully the other, (laughs) I don't know, man, I don't know where your relatives are. Maybe they are all in hell. And maybe for you, that's a bad idea, I guess. I don't know. Well, and we'll get there as we as we're going to talk about kind of where where opinions started to really turn against the Ouija board. Okay, um, there's a specific uh, pop cultural reason why that happened. Um, Interesting. We'll, okay. we'll get there, but it goes along with exactly what you're saying. Okay. Now, spiritualist practices at the time, like like there was the idea of the talking board, I think was not unknown, but the way mediums tended to work is they would conduct a seance. And we've all seen like the movies where it's the medium is channeling somebody. So that was one way where the medium is like doing the automatic writing, they're writing something out. Or another way, sort of the most common way, and I think this kind of comes from the Fox sisters, is that you would sit there and you would like say like, okay, I'm going to get a message from the beyond. So I'm going to go through the alphabet. A, B. C, D, E. And then when the spirit's like... Knock. Okay, yeah. let's go back to the beginning. A, B. So like For you, you can, youngs, you, yeah. it's similar to what Winona Ryder did with the Christmas lights in Stranger Things. Actually, in case you need yeah, a, a cultural actually, access point to that. Right, right. That's a, that's actually, <laughs> that's like a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I had forgotten that. <laughs> I was thinking like, this is the way, like, if this is like, take it to a little bit of a dark direction. 
if you've ever seen the movie The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, it's about a... He, I can't remember his name. He's a French journalist who got locked-in syndrome, which means oh. it's like oh. the worst. <laughs> it's the worst thing. That's like one of the most horrifying ideas to me. But I think he yeah. can basically blink one eye. Uh, and so that's the way his nurse, he in, he actually dictated an entire book with this method. His nurse basically running along a board with the alphabet and he would like blink on each letter. Um, <laughs> the look on your face. You just, you look like you're going to throw up. <laughs> no, I'm not going to throw up. Just like Im- imagine doing that for a paragraph. Much less a book. Like he yeah. wrote his like autobiography way yeah much Christian less Bowby, i think was his name yeah ooh, ooh. i'd be yeah. like no f- f- i'm tired and just <laughs> well i think it took a long anymore. time well yeah. this is kind of the problem is like frankly people started getting like bored with these seances because like you would go to the saints like i'm gonna talk to my grandmother or my brother who's killed in the civil war or whatever it's like okay a b c and it's like do i really like is it, do I really need to hear from my brother? And you know they couldn't move that fast. They had to be like, A. B. Yes! Ugh. Yeah. So this Come on, kinda, Roger. Speed it up. So this kind of led to the innovation of the talking board. Well, the quote-unquote talking board. Okay. These became kind of popularized in 1886 when there was a spiritualist camp in Ohio that were using these quote talking board, like these kind of, they just sort of made them themselves, these makeshift talking boards with the planchette. Uh huh. Uh huh. And uh, an Associated Press article kind of publicized what they were doing. And at the time, it was not, again, it was not seen as particularly weird. People were just, you know, kind of like all in on this whole idea. <laughs> Okay. But after after the stories of the talking boards came out in 1886, a group of businessmen in Baltimore were like, huh, I wonder if there's a way to make money off of this. Of course. You know, America capitalism. That's right. The way we do things. So the Ouija board, it, like I said, it was at least someone inspired by these makeshift talking boards. Uh, but in, on October 20th, 1890, a group of businessmen, a guy named Elijah Bond, who was a lawyer uh, working in Baltimore, a guy named Harry Wells Rusk, a guy named Charles W. Kennard, a guy named William H.A. Malpin, and then Colonel Washington Bowie all got together and signed Articles of Incorporation for what was called the Kennard Novelty Company. This was certified on October 30th of 1890, which seems appropriate, mm. time-wise spooky halloween yeah yep <laughs> and the the whole purpose of the canard novelty company was to distribute a talking board that had been designed by elijah bond this baltimore lawyer canard was a famous or um not famous but he was a successful businessman in baltimore he owned a fertilizer company um at 20, 220 south charles street in baltimore he offered that as the location of the company's headquarters and then this colonel washington bowie he provided the initial funding So from the Smithsonian article, it says none of the men were spiritualists, really, but they were all keen businessmen and they'd identified a niche. Okay, so a little bit more about Elijah Bond. He had served in the Confederate Army. He was working as a lawyer in Baltimore, but he also moonlighted as an inventor. And he is on record for patenting the first official Ouija board on May 28, 1890. On the patent paperwork, Kennard and Malpin are listed as assignees. So they were already working together to create this company. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the patent here in a minute. So it's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. The patent was granted on February 3rd of 1891. And at that point, Bond sold the distribution rights to the Kennard Novelty Company. And then it sounds like they kind of pushed him out. 
and like this happened a lot there's a lot of like we're all working together except no now you're gone kind of thing Mm -hmm. so the original design for the ouija board it's it's pretty similar to what we see today it was a rectangular board had the alphabet printed in this kind of old english font in this like semicircular two rows of semicircular lettering right and then under that were the numbers one two three all the way through zero up in the upper left corner flanked by like a circle which was meant to depict a full moon is the word no and then up on the upper right corner there's a crescent moon with a star and it has next to the word yes and this was for like simple yes or no questions So here's a quote again from the Smithsonian Magazine that says, Though truth in advertising is hard to come by, especially in products from the 19th century, the Ouija board was, quote, interesting and mysterious. It actually had been proven to work at the patent office before its patent was allowed to proceed. Mm. So like I said, I'm going to get back to that whole patent situation in a second, but just a little bit of what happened to these guys. So in 1907, like I said, Bond got, like he sold his interest in the Ouija board to the Canard novelty company i think he was kind of forced like his hand was kind of forced so then he started selling a knockoff version called the nirvana he ended up establishing a company called the swastika novelty company in 1957 which i mean if if the swat like i tried to find more information on this but like if the swastika novelty company had been established in like 1907 or 1920 you'd be like okay unfortunate but okay we're well past world war ii (laughs) Yeah. So that I want I have my now again, you know, Nirvana is a Buddhist concept which obviously mm-hmm. comes from India. You know, swastikas are associated with India, so I'm sure that was what they were going for. But again, mm. they could not be like unaware of the association. Intr- yeah, weird. Okay. Uh this company actually lasted officially until 2014. And it sounds really? like they didn't refile the articles of incorporation and it was kind of can't like dissolved, but this is just a few years ago. Um, okay, we got to talk about a guy named William Fold now. So William Fold, he was working in Baltimore at the time as a customs inspector, but he also had a side gig as a varnisher, specifically varnishing wood. And right. so they hired him at this Canard Novelty Company to like be the foreman of the varnishing process for these Ouija boards. He managed to, like, so Bond is seen, uh, Elijah Bond is seen as the inventor of the Ouija board, but William Fold is really seen as, like, the father of the Ouija board because he's the one who popularized it because he managed to push Canard out of his own company in 1892 and take over. I'm not sure how you go from varnisher to, like, I'm taking over your company, but he's somehow to do that. It's the American dream. (laughs) It's the American way. (laughs) I mean, it basically sounds like he did what, like, Elon Musk did to Twitter. So, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and he changed the company from the the name of the company from the Canard Novelty Company to the Ouija Novelty Company that same year. Canard also went on and tried to market other quote talking boards. But one thing is that William Fold was very litigious and he would turn around and just anyone who was trying to sell any sort of knockoff of the Ouija board, mm-hmm. he would turn around and sue them. So, all the people who actually created the damn thing are getting sued and stopped promoting it or their versions of it and the varnisher is like the one who's making all the money yeah again that the yep, american, american way Mm-hmm. Right. In 1898, uh, he and his brother Isaac went into business as Isaac Fold and Brother, and they began leasing out the Ouija name. They also had a bitter falling out a few years later. Isaac would then go on to also try to market 
a knockoff version called the Oriole and was sued by his brother. So over time, Ouija, it's like Kleenex. Like Ouija just became, like the idea of the talking Uh. board is more generic, but over time, like the Ouija board kind of became just like what it was known as. Okay. Okay, a little bit more. Let's get into like a little bit more of the history of the actual board itself. So it's often incorrectly believed that the name Ouija comes from combining the French and German words for yes. So you have we and ja. Which I've I mean, never heard that. Okay. Yeah, which would make sense. Um, but the actual supposed reason, and like maybe that's actually where they got it, but the mythology around where the name mm-hmm. came from. And it, and it depends on who you talk to. So this Charles Kennard, he claims to have come up with it while using the board, speaking to an ancient Egyptian spirit. He claimed the spirit gave him the name Ouija, which he said is an ancient Egyptian word meaning good luck. Okay. So, you know, we could believe that. Or this Robert Merch claims that actually the name probably came from Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was herself a medium. So supposedly, similar story, they were conducting a seance where the name came through to this Helen Peters and she said this board shall be called the Ouija board, the Ouija board, Mm. whatever. But it's also known that she was wearing a locket at the time that depicted a woman with the word Ouija written above her head. It's believed that this woman was actually a British author named Mary Louise Ramey who published about 40 novels under the name Ouida, so O-U-I-D-A. Okay. And it's known that Helen Peters, Elijah Bond's sister, was a fan of Ouida. And so they think that the name, the word Ouija was like a misspelling or mis, misinterpretation huh. of the name Ouida and that they just took it from the picture in her locket. Interesting. And then, like I said, they had to go get the thing patented. So here's the story of the patent. Okay. This is from the Smithsonian article. It says, quote, knowing that if they couldn't prove that the board worked, they wouldn't get their patent. Bond brought the indispensable Peters, so his sister-in-law, to the patent office in Washington with him when he filed his application. There, the chief patent officer demanded a demonstration. If the board could accurately spell out his name, which was supposed to be unknown to Bond and Peters, he'd allow the patent application to proceed. They all sat down, communed with the spirits, (laughs) and the planchette faithfully spelled out the patent officer's name. Now, whether or not it was mystical spirits or the fact that Bond, as a patent attorney, may have actually just known the man's name. Well, that's unclear. (laughs) I mean, you do have to ask yourself how the spirits knew his name. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's more likely that the patent attorney would know his name. Yeah. Than like the ancient Egyptian spirit telling you good luck or whatever. This is, I guess this is my like question, right? And I've played with a Ouija board, like it's all good. But my thing about it is you have, if you believe that the spirits are like, that they're the spirits of those who have died. Mm -hmm. I mean, billions upon billions of people have died in the history of humanity. I think they say like 30 billion people have lived on earth altogether okay okay yeah so billions and billions of people have died and you're sitting there moving your little ouija board you know like how is it that the spirits are like oh i'll get this one like are they like what is the you know (laughs) what i'm saying never been clear to me how that's you know what like I just, it feels to me like I I envision either all of these spirits zooming along on their little like <laughs> spiritual highways or whatever. And then they're just like, oh, let me take an exit, you know, and like, mm-hmm. let me answer this Ouija board. Or the other thing I envision is like the waiting room in Beetlejuice. 
mm-hmm. where they're just like sitting there and like a Ouija board will pop up and they're like, you know, they're like, oh, okay. that's my number. And they go and answer it. <laughs> I mean, all of those <laughs> make sense. I do think part of the actual belief is that the spirits of those who are close to you are supposed to stay like hover around you so that the spirits who are talking to you are like, so, and this is part of where the yes, no on the Ouija board comes in. Cause you're like, right. are you my brother, Thomas? And it's like, yes. And then like, you can't ask for ID. Or like, you know, can I see your driver's license? No. Like, I mean, <laughs> so you just, you trust it or you don't, I guess. <laughs> L- listen, know your, know your spiritual rights. And if one of the living asks for ID, know that you do not have to present it without cause. <laughs> There you go. So, so back to this patent office. So again, like I said, whether or not it was mystical spirits or just the fact that Bond, a patent attorney, actually knew the man's name, well, that's unclear. But on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced and visibly shaken patent officer awarded Bond a patent for his new, quote, toy or game. Mm, so that's how it okay. came to be. The game was immediately popular. Of course. Like it was just, it, it ex- immediately exploded in popularity. By 1892, the Kennard, so within a year, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one in London. Not long after that is when Fun pushed Bond and Kennard out and took over the company. Okay. So while William Fun's company was booming at the turn of the century, they're all fighting about who truly invented the game. This is all spilling over into Baltimore newspapers. Mm. Uh, people are trying to launch the rival games. You got the Nirvana, you got the Oriole. William Fun is suing everybody. Eventually, the Ouija board is the only one left standing. Okay. The only original founder of the company, that Colonel Washington Bowie, he sold his shares to fall. To, I kept saying fund, but no, it's fold. Sorry. Okay. He sold his shares to fold in 1919 for a dollar. A dollar. For a dollar. So then I also wonder, like, was there any strong arming happening there? Mm. And it's important to note, like, like, again, just to the idea that the spiritualism was, like, super popular, like, sort of the end of the 1800s, kind of middle to end of the 1800s. Yeah. It actually got even more popular in the early 20th century. And I mean, everyone, like, Arthur Conan Doyle was a known spiritualist. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Harry Houdini was a spiritualist. It was like... There's yeah. an interesting story about Houdini and the Ouija board. And yeah, I'm not remembering I what it... I, I heard that, but I didn't. Agree. And I want to say that although Houdini was a spiritualist, is that what you, has mm-hmm. that? Okay. That he was vehemently against the Ouija board, that he was like, that's bullshit. That's not real. Interesting. And I think he went to like, now I'm getting, now I'm wondering if I'm confused. I can't remember if it's the Ouija board or if, or if it was seances that he was like, this is bullshit. Well, they're all kind of tied together. Yeah. But was like, was like openly and vocally against whichever one it was. I'll fact Which, check uh, like I didn't I, I I knew that there's like connections between Houdini and like spiritualism and the Ouija board but I didn't specifically find that story but anyway here's another quote from the Smithsonian magazine it says it's quite logical that the board would find its greatest popularity in uncertain times when people would hold fast to belief and look for answers from just about anywhere especially cheap DIY oracles the 1910s and 20s with the devastations of World War one and the manic years of the jazz age and prohibition witnessed a surge in Ouija popularity. It was so normal that in May 1920, Norman Rockwell, illustrator of blissful 20th century domesticity, depicted a man and a woman, a Ouija board on their knees, communing with the beyond on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Wow. So 
He kept opening new factories all through the Great Depression. Like, everyone's going out of business, losing their shirt during the Depression, but Ouija boards are just some of the gangbusters. In 1944, a single New York department store sold 50000 in one year. He finally sold the game to the Parker Brothers in 1966. And then the following year, in 1967, Parker Brothers sold more than 2 million Ouija boards, actually outselling the Monopoly game. Mm. Parker wow. Brothers is also an interesting story. Yeah, and I didn't, that was another, I started going down that rabbit hole and was like, nope, pull it up short, because. Yeah, I believe um, they were two Polish-Jewish brothers. I think so, yeah, because mm-hmm. I don't believe Parker was there, like, like I think that's their, like, Ellis Island name. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the weird shit that's associated with Ouija boards. Let's do it. Is what everyone's been waiting for. All right, so, like, almost from the beginning, people were associating real strange stories with it. So, in 1916, a writer named Pearl Curran, she became famous after publishing poems that she claimed were dictated via the Ouija board. She said that the actual author of these poems was a 17th century English woman named Patience Worth. And then the next year, her friend Emily Grant wrote a book where she claimed she'd been contacted by Mark Twain. So it's huh. it's a, that seems a little shitty to me. Like, oh, like I talked to the century seventeenth century English woman named Patience Worth, and then your best friend's like, um, well, I talked to Mark Twain. Okay, Edith, <laughs> or whatever her name was. What was Emily. her name? Emily. <laughs> Always got to be number one. Fine. <laughs> Just let me have my moment, Emily. <laughs> Now, I I will say uh, it sounds like Pearl Curran was more successful with her claims than Emily Grant. She was like, I talked to Mark Twain and it sounds like no one gave a shit. I I feel like she... I feel like she overshot it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's the thing is that you can be like, yeah, I, I talked to this one, which also you said her name was Patience Worth. Mm-hmm. The, the, the English woman's name was Patience Yeah, the English woman's name is a great name, Patience right. Worth. Like, that, that's a fantastic name. Mm-hmm. But there's not a way to, like, fact check it. To overshoot it and to be like, I've been talking well, to Mark Twain. Like It's like, I think we've talked about this on here, but it's like, you know, everyone who's like claims like, oh, I've experienced my past lives. There's always like some ancient Egyptian princess or something. Right. Nobody's ever like a butter churner. Like no one's like, I was a farmer in fucking Illinois. Yeah. In like 1872. I died of cholera when I was 30. No, everybody's, everybody's always like King Tut. Everybody's right. fucking always Marilyn Monroe or whatever the fuck. Yeah. No, you weren't. It's like, no, you weren't. You really, you're a street sweeper. <laughs> I might believe that you were a farmer in Illinois in 1932. If like that's the vision you had, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know why you'd make that up. But when you're yeah. like, I was Marilyn Monroe, I'm like, go fuck yourself. Her home is in danger of being uh, demolished in really? Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh, there's a bunch I've of people and they got they got like a stay on it. But yeah, there's a bunch of people that are like, you, this needs to be. I would like. Think. This, is- this needs to be a, a historical landmark. And I like it's it's she lived in different places, but that was the only home she ever bought. Huh. And I believe it's the home that she died in. That makes so- sense. Well, I know that like, I mean, L.A. has got a not a great history of like tearing, you know, tearing down. That's, it's like Hollywood. Yeah, classical that's, that's Hollywood what every history. Yeah. that's what everybody's saying about this. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. Continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's interesting. I have to read up on that. Okay, 1920. <laughs> this seems like this sort of rhymes with what's going on today. A bunch of news reports came out about amateur detectives using Ouija boards to try to solve the murder of a New York City gambler named Joseph Burton Elwell. This, like, super annoyed the police. 
and it just it makes me think of like all the like net sleuths today where it's like, right it's and like, also this has been going on forever yeah yeah precisely also everyone's like that like yeah. again we've talked about this a lot a fascination with crime and murder mm-hmm. and death is not new it's not been around new. as long as we've been dying yeah right in 1921 uh there was a new york times report about a chicago woman who was sent to a psychiatric hospital she <gasps> insisted to her doctors that she was not in fact suffering from delusions but that she had actually been contacted through a Ouija board by spirits that told her that she needed to leave her mother's dead body laying in the living room for 15 days before finally dragging her out to the backyard to bury her. And I think it was like she was in the middle of burying her when people were like, what, what, what are you doing? Oh, what are you doing? Hey, Edith. <laughs> um, hi. What? <laughs> what are you doing over there? Just hanging out? Just uh, what, digging a hole? I see. Okay. All right. Hey. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what happened. In 1930, there were reports of two women in Buffalo who murdered another woman after being told to by mm. a Ouija board. So the women were Lilac Jimerson and Nancy Bowen, and they killed a woman named, and I'm going to get the pronunciation of her first name wrong. It's like Clotilde Marchand. Okay. So according to the story, Jimerson got her friend Bowen together around a Ouija board, and the Ouija board told Bowen that she had to go kill this Clotilde Marchand. Well, it turns out that Jimerson was actually in love with Marchand's husband and was hoping to marry him after his wife's death. The husband, it is said, he was an artist. He was a sculptor at the local science museum. He had used both Jimerson and Bowen as models, and he claimed, he was like, hey, I was, they were models. I, I was friendly with them, but it was strictly professional. Like, I don't know where she got this idea, you know, allegedly, I guess. Um, (laughs) Look, I drew them nude. Yeah. I mean, I might have, you know. We're (laughs) spiritualists. In 1958, Helen Dow Peck left $1,000 to two of her servants, and then a whopping $152,000 to someone named John Gale Forbes. The problem was John Gale Forbes was a disincorporated spirit who she'd contacted through a Ouija board. <laughs> so the court did not honor the will. I, okay, I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember what I was listening to. Oh, I was listening to a podcast, and there was this whole story about this woman who had married a ghost. <laughs> And then, like, immediately on their honeymoon was like, I can't handle this. I am seeking a divorce from From my ghost. (laughs) I mean. Yeah. yeah. She claims that he started to become abusive on their honeymoon. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, not, not, you know, I'm not one to, like, be skeptical of those types of stories of abuse, except when it's like a ghost i and it, i'm trying not to laugh because i don't know if maybe you know maybe she was struggling but she she married she married a ghost and that is where she said she said that in attendance there were several spirits in attendance at her ghost wedding and one of them was the spirit of marilyn monroe <laughs> i was gonna say like it was william shakespeare or whatever because she's so important yeah <laughs> again overshooting the mark a little bit um yeah so yeah the court did not look kindly on this will and was like no thank you all the way up in 1982 pulitzer prize winning poet james Merrill released an epic ouija dictated poem called the changing light at sandover and he actually won the national book critics circle award for it 
Now he claims, unlike with Pearl Curran, that he wasn't like channeling a spirit so much as he was using the Ouija board to kind of magnify his own subconscious. Mm, That's a little. Okay. Yeah. That's a little more. I'll allow it. (laughs) You've declared that it's okay. Yeah. Um, So all the way up through most of the 20th century, people really didn't like turn up their nose at Ouija boards. People were like, no, they're fine. They're innocent. Like, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, early on, people were like really super believed in them. And then later, I think it was more like, it's a game. It's like a little parlor trick. It's like a Halloween, you know, whatever. We're having fun with it. And then something happened in 1973. That is part of the kickoff of the satanic panic. I talked about this on my episode with um, Rebecca Rowland from last year, Swimming Witch, I think it was called. A little uh, movie came out called The Exorcist. And this freaked everyone the fuck out. So Mm. if you've ever seen The Exorcist, if you remember, in the movie, Reagan is supposedly possessed by the demon Pazuzu, also known Mm -hmm. as Captain Howdy. Okay. This is after she was playing with a Ouija board. Oh. So people are already getting freaked out about devil shit. And I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of the satanic panic, but just a quick reminder. The squares were getting real freaked out about the way society was going with like all right. the hippies with their with their ganja and their, you know, new age, whatever, and free love and drugs and everything. And then, you know, a movie came out, or well, a book came out in the 1960s called Rosemary's Baby, followed by the movie. This kind of started mm-hmm. the interest. This, of course, led to The Exorcist, which was like, people forget that the exorcist was like to 1973 audiences it's like what like the avengers was today like it was everybody saw the exorcist yeah like lines around the block kind of thing and this was really you know and then of course you know things really took a turn at the end of the 70s with the book michelle remembers which of course i talked about and we're off to the races with the satanic panic but kind of the hinge point was the exorcist is michelle remember is that the trailer did you send me it did you post it the trailer for that document oh yeah that's right there is there is the movie i think it's documentary about it i believe documentary yeah Um, which i haven't seen yet i'm really curious about yeah but yeah so like michelle remembers was where like the satanic panic really just went to its like craziest most psychotic extremes but that fulcrum that hinge point was the exorcist Mm-hmm. And a lot of the focus was on the Ouija board, which you could go down to like your Montgomery Ward or whatever and like buy, you know. Yeah. Next to like, you know, your Monopoly or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so again, quote from this Robert Merch, this historian, he says, it's kind of like Psycho. No one was afraid of showers until that scene. It's a clear line. I Love Lucy, for example, featured a 1951 episode in which Lucy and Ethel host a sands using the Ouija board. But for at least 10 years afterwards, it's no joke. The exorcist actually changed the fabric of pop culture. Hmm. So like I said, this was one of the sparks of the satanic panic. Well, Parker Brothers, not to be like, you know, outdone. They were like, let's fucking lean in. So the Ouija board never lost popularity. They started, Mm -hmm. it just became much more associated where it was like a fun little innocent game before. Now it's like officially like, no, this is spooky shit that you're dealing with. Sold to you by Parker Brothers. Right. Um, I mean, all the way up through like the recent movies, you know, the Ouija franchise from 2014 and then Ouija Origin of Evil from 2016 directed by, by the way, Mike Flanagan, who 
I know you're a fan of with uh, yeah. Haunting of Hill House and you know things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the first two paranormal activity films show the use of a Ouija board. This could not be possible if this was not, you know, being used as product placement. <laughs> and at this point, um, actually, Hasbro had actually bought up Parker Brothers in 1991. So this is Hasbro. But like both Parker Brothers and then Hasbro are like, they're like, you know, let's, let's, let's lean in. Let's, I think there's money to be made with freaking mm-hmm. people out. In 2001, outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico, a religious group burned a bunch of Ouija boards alongside copies of Harry Potter and Disney's Snow White. Why Snow White? Because demon, it's like magic and sorcery and stuff. The evil witch mother is like, I mean, why Harry Potter? Why Dungeons and Dragons? Harry Potter, Harry Potter, I don't understand, but I understand. Do you know Uh, what I mean? Because it's like, oh, it's witchcraft and all this stuff. I don't know. I mean... I, I, like i guess i guess with snow white that's just it feels like a very thin it's yeah, i mean you gotta want it i mean you gotta and think of clearly like, these people do i'm imagining whoever these people are they're probably people who watched you know 19 and counting and thought that's the way we ought to live our lives so right. you know <laughs> oh my god continue okay <laughs> Um, but like even today, like Ouija boards bring out people. Catholic.com calls the Ouija board, quote, far from harmless. In 2011, Pat Robertson on the 700 Club, uh, may he rest in peace, I guess, declared that demons can reach out and corrupt us through the use of the Ouija board. Because clearly he saw the exorcist. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's a documentary. Yeah. Like I said, Hasbro bought up Parker Brothers in 1991. They continue yes, to sell hundreds of thousands of Ouija boards a year. But like I said, now it's it's officially part of the like marketing to like lean into the spookiness. Like okay. all the way up through 2012 when Hasbro released a quote classic version that is meant to look like the so they had gone to like glow in the dark plastic cardboard with like a plastic planchette. Now it's like yeah. going back to the wood wooden planchette to give it a more mystical vibe spooky yuki feel and that is the history of the ouija board there's a whole lot more i could have gone into but like i said i really had to like make some decisions because this is one of those just like 18 million fucking rabbit holes. yeah lots of rabbit holes to go to go down yeah fantastic okay scotty all right moving on yep i have solved the game okay and I am going to say that it was Mr. Gold in the gun room with the shillelagh. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Wait. That's not right. What? <laughs> okay. Today I'm going to tell you all about the history of the board game clue. Um, <laughs> sources for this are the History Channel, Wikipedia, uh, an article from Mental Floss, uh, an article from Entertainment Weekly, The Nerdist, or I actually guess it's just Nerdist. And Uh, an article from The Guardian. Okay. Okay. So if you don't know how the game Clue works, it goes like this. There are a limited number of characters. They are confined in a country manor, riddled with secret passages and potential murder weapons. And when the mansion's owner, Mr. Body, is, Mm -hmm. well, he ends up brutally murdered, right? right? The board is laid out like a building plan and the corridors are overlaid with a grid. Those are the spaces that you move as the player, as like little pieces. Right. The in the middle is a cellar and the stairs sport an X where the body was found. The players slash characters essentially use math and uh, like powers of deduction to solve who killed Mr. Body in which room and with what weapon. Right. Can I just say so, like 
I loved Clue, but I always really sucked at it. It was just too much. Like you had to apply too much logic to it for me. I am going to say that I loved playing it, but I never really understood how you were supposed to play it. Um, And I was terrible at like keeping notes. mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was in, I was visiting my brother and sister-in-law and niece last Thanksgiving that he hauled out their you know, their clue. Mm -hmm. And we started playing it that I was like, Oh, yeah. I've never tried as an adult. I bet I could figure it out now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy, but it, you're like, okay, I get what's happening here. Okay. So where did the dang game come from? A man named Anthony E. Pratt. He was an English musician and factory worker. He invented the original game and he spent, so prior to World War II, he spent a lot of time playing piano at these like elegant country mansion parties that would frequently Mm. include murder mystery games that were inspired Mm. by the writings of like Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie, right? Mm. So they would, you know, lots of people, he'd be playing piano. People would be like, oh, let's play a game of murder. This so this is pre World War Two. Okay, this is probably I'm thinking probably like post World War One, so probably like late twenties and thirties. I just want to like point out like these are probably the same people who are also like getting together to hold seances. It, I mean, it's yeah. probably not wrong. Again, there is a bit of a fascination. Right. We've always again we've always had a fascination with death. So there's that. So yeah, so he's playing piano at these parties and he's like watching these people like, you know, do these little like murder mystery games. And he also is a fan of Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie Mm -hmm. and all the people who are writing these like murder mystery books during that time. Well, fast forward a little bit and we're in the middle of World War II during the air raids that are taking place Mm -hmm. in the UK. And Pratt was holed up in his Birmingham home with his wife, Elva, and he remembered all all of these like murder mystery parties that he'd seen. This is a quote from the Guardian article. Quote, Pratt's private response to the war was idiosyncratic. One summer evening in 1943, as he was leaning on his garden fence, it dawned on me that this wretched old war was killing the country's social life. He yearned for the days of old, he said, when we lived like lords. All the bright young things would congregate in each other's homes for parties at weekends. We would play a stupid game called murder where the guests crept Mm. up on each other in corridors and the victim would shriek and fall to the ground. Then came the war and the blackout and it all went poof. Overnight, all the fun ended. We were reduced to creeping off to the cinema between air raids to watch thrillers. I do so miss the partying and those awful games of murder, end quote. That does sound like a fun game. Yeah. So he decided to recreate these games in miniature as a board game that he and his wife, Elva, could play to pass the time during the blackouts. Oh, okay. So they're playing it and playing it and playing it. They're having a good time. The story of the game itself seems to have borrowed its plot from Agatha Christie's 1942 The Body in the Library, which Mm, begins with Colonel and Mrs. Bantry of Gossington Hall discovering the body of young platinum blonde dancer Ruby Keene in their library. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. They developed the suspects and the weapons. Elva designed the board game on their dining room table. She also sketched out the weapons and stuff. And he called the game murder! Exclamation <laughs> point. In 1944, the Pratts applied for a patent for the game and then sold it to the UK-based game manufacturer Waddington's and its American counterpart, 
Parker Brothers. Mm -hmm. Waddington's executive, Norman Watson, changed the name from murder, exclamation point, to Cluedo, which is a portmanteau of Clue and Ludo. Ludo is Latin for I play, and it's also the name of an already popular board game, which we in the U.S. know by the name Parcheesi. Oh, interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's like overthinking the name, though, a little bit. I gotta say, like, let's go to like some Latin. Names. It's just... Well, Ludo is was Parcheesi. Uh-huh. In, so I guess people knew it. Yeah. yeah. And that's why it's in the in the UK, it was, and I believe still is, Cluedo. Oh, okay. And in the US, it's Clue. All right. That makes more sense because it's like people are associating it with this other brand. I'm just like, precisely. Don't make people translate Latin. No, 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 no. It was, I think they were like, clue, clue, Cluedo, 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 Cluedo. There we go. Beautiful. I accept Yeah. Okay. I'm glad. In case you're interested, Parcheesi is the American name of an Indian cross and circle game named Pachisa. Hmm. I've never played Parcheesi. I looked at the board and tried to like read the instructions for, and I was like, I don't, I don't, I. I'm not doing a story about Parcheesi, and so I moved on. (laughs) Um, Like I said, Americans weren't super familiar with Ludo, so Parker Brothers was like, we're just going to call the U.S. version Clue. A side note about Norman Watson, the guy from Waddington's... At the behest of MI9, he spent the war slipping escape tools into board games being sent to British prisoner of war camps. That's like yeah. a story in and of itself. Like, yeah. So he would include like little metal implements and like teeny tiny silk maps of Norway, Sweden, Germany, wow. France. Again, this is a quote from the Guardian article, quote, in a reversal of his usual business, he had sent out real charts and weapons disguised as toys. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. So the patent for Cluedo slash Clue was granted in 1947, but post war shortages meant that the game wouldn't actually be launched until 1949. So if you remember what I said at the top of my story, you probably realized that you did not recognize the who, what, and where of Mm -hmm. that sentence. And that's because Pratt's original game concept had nine weapons and they were an axe a cudgel or a shillelagh, a a bomb, a piece. (laughs) And the bomb is like, you know, an old school, like round, like fizzing bomb, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like Like it wasn't like, yes, like a cartoon bomb. It wasn't like an atom bomb. It was like a little bomb. A piece of rope, a dagger, a revolver, a hypodermic syringe, a bottle of poison, and a fireplace poker. The final mm-hmm. game would only have the rope gun dagger, and it would add the candlestick, the wrench, and the lead pipe. I don't know why the hypodermic syringe just feels way darker than the it, it feels, like, too much. Right. <laughs> like, it, it feels, like, way too much. And I remember being little, and, like, I understood the rope, I understood the gun and the dagger, but I remember being like how do you kill somebody with a candlestick a wrench and a pipe like Mm -hmm. and somebody had to explain to me and i think it was like it may have been my dad that was like you you know (laughs) i mean that seems like Like, something one of your brothers would have explained to you i can see your dad doing it too (laughs) and i think i was like what and that was me finding out that like if you hit somebody in the head hard enough you can kill them like it had never occurred to me before did I ever tell you how, like, one of my earliest memories is hitting uh, my friend Jada in the face with a hammer in preschool just because I wanted to see what would happen? 
Scotty. <laughs> but I mean, she's now like she's now like a writer for the New York Times, so she's fine. But yeah, no, you're just, like so. <laughs> that's cool. No, no harm, no foul. Um, no, I was just too young. I was just like, what'll happen if I do this? And I was like, oh, she's crying and bleeding a lot. That was not a good idea. Yeah, she she does like to remind me of that. I'm glad. I'm (laughs) glad. Okay. There were originally 10 characters. So like I said, we had the, the nine weapons, we had 10 characters and they were Dr. Black, Mr. Brown, Mr. Gold, the Reverend, Mr. Green, Miss Gray, Professor Plum, Miss Scarlet, which was clearly based on the Ruby Keen character from the Agatha Christie novel, Mm. Nurse White, Mrs. Silver and Colonel Yellow. Okay. The patent included side elevations of two pawns. One was shaped like a long neck bottle, and that was to be used for the male characters. The other was a squat bottle for the female characters. Mm -hmm. There were also originally 10 rooms on the board, the ones that we know, and a gun room, which was later dropped. Okay, so let's talk about the characters a little bit. I want to start this off by saying that there have been many, many versions, like like editions of this game, Mm -hmm. especially in the U.S. The U.K. has famously only had three versions of this game. They're just like traditionalists over there. Yeah, and I want to say that in the U.S. it was like the 1949 and then like a 1950 something and then like I think a 63 and then a 72. and then like like 81 yeah they were revamping the game a little bit the uk version went from the original launch in 1949 until i think 1992 or 98 Hmm. that's when the second edition of pluto came out wow okay so yeah they really were like no we've got a good thing there's literally no reason to change anything Yeah. yeah but so there's been many editions there's also like many versions there's like a simpsons clue and a fucking harry potter clue and all that kind of stuff there's mm-hmm. also other spin-off games like i just mentioned tv shows there was i think a tv show i think here and i think in the uk a musical <laughs> there is now actually a stage play my friends at the barter theater in virginia are currently in the middle of getting that thing up i think they're in tech as we are recording and they will be be opening soon and my impression is that the play not the musical because musical is not great but the play is essentially just the movie script oh okay yeah that could be that could be super fun Super fun. And of course, like I just mentioned, the 1985 movie, which we will come back to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about these characters. Dr. Black is better known as Mr. Body in the U.S., and that's the murder victim. Mm -hmm. He's the wealthy owner of Tudor Mansion slash clothes slash hall in the U.K. versions and Body Mansion slash Manor in the U.S. He's gone through, the character's gone through various changes throughout the years. Originally, in the original patent, he was one of 10 character cards. And I guess apparently like when you would play a new round, you could pick a new victim. Mm, Yeah. He's been a prominent anthropologist and heir of his late uncle's estate. That's in the 2002 U.S. edition. Mm. Bowden Body Black Jr., who acquired his wealth through inheritance and used his many political connections to push permits and construction on his new hotel that's in the 2023 version he is played by lee ving in the movie mm-hmm. apparently that was a joke on set that they'd be like mr body is leaving <laughs> that's, that's clever. Like this 
stupidest it seems joke. Like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna guess that like that feels very much like a Michael McKeon joke. I I'm think just gonna it was, credit it to him. I think it was in the spirit of the entire production. Mm-hmm. Like because yeah. <laughs> I want to say that was actually John Landis. I think that was his joke that he was uh, like, uh-huh. Yeah, that also that feels like, like a John Landis joke. I forgot, I forgot he made that movie. Yeah, anyway, we'll, yeah, we'll he was a, he was a, yeah, we'll come back to it. Uh Colonel Yeller. Let me try that again. <laughs> Colonel Yellow. We know him better as Colonel Mustard. Watson, the guy from Waddington, specifically asked for the name change because he thought that yellow, color used to signify cowardice, quote, had certain connotations inappropriate in a military man. Mm. I mean, he's the guy who's sending like shivs over to POWs, so I can see him being like, "We're we're, yeah, we're not going to besmirch like, the military." <laughs> yeah, when the guy is like, "I want to make this like one change," as I save like you know yeah. countless British POWs, you're not going to be like, "I mean, he earned it." Yeah, they were probably like heard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Changes. Michael Mustard, who was the former officer of the Royal Hampshire Regiment. He's writing a memoir of his military exploits. That's who he is in the 2002 version. Okay. Um, he's also been a popular officer, though plagued by rumors of treason and war profiteering. That's the 2016 version. He's played mm-hmm. by Martin Mull in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love me some Martin Mull. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk about him when we when we get okay. to the movie. Okay. Um, Miss Scarlet, your stereotypical femme fatale character. Right. She is portrayed originally in the game as young, cunning, and very attractive. Mm-hmm. In Clue, Master Detective, which was essentially just an addition of the game on steroids, it had 12 weapons. There were like, I think, 10 rooms in the house. There were 10 characters who so could be played with up to 10. It was basically just an uber version of the game. Okay. But you'll hear me make a couple of references to Clue Master Detective. In Clue Master Detective, Miss Scarlet is an Asian woman nicknamed the Mercenary of Macau. Mm. In the musical, she is a former Vegas lounge singer. And in the 2023 edition, she is an African-British gossip colonist who writes under the pen name Cyan. Mm. Okay. She is played by Leslie Ann Warren in the movie, and the character is a DC madam in the movie. That's right. Yes. 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 Okay. Mrs. White slash Nurse White slash Chef White. Originally known as Nurse White, this was, I think, in the patent, then presented as Mrs. White. She is a frazzled servant who was Mr. Body's cook and housekeeper. Mrs. Blanche White was the cook and housekeeper of Tudor Mansion and the former nanny of Mr. Body himself. That's in the 2002 version okay. uh, or edition, rather. Diana White, a former child star, that's in Clue Discover the Secrets. <laughs> she also goes by the alias Alexis Villanueva, who is a lawyer turned vigilante. That's the 2012 edition. She was replaced by Dr. Orchid in the 2016 version. And Chef White, which is a character which is younger with white hair, who worked for Mr. Body before opening her own restaurant using money that she embezzled from Mr. Mm. Body. That's in the 2023 version. She is expertly played by Madeline Kahn in the movie. And in the movie, she is the widow of a nuclear physicist. She is suspected of murdering. I mean, we just need to take like a second to appreciate Madeline Kahn. We're going to take it in a moment when I come back to the movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Reverend slash Mr. slash Mayor Green. 
<laughs> so again, origi- originally, he was the Reverend Mr. Green. In the original patent, he was a hypocritical Anglican priest. In the U.S., it was changed from Reverend to Mr. because Parker Brothers thought that Americans would be like, about a murderous holy man. Okay. <laughs> The character has been everything from a mobster to a businessman. The Mm -hmm. 2002 edition had Mr. John Green, a.k.a. Reverend Green, who had a reputation for fraud, money laundering, and smuggling. And he's also been Mayor Green of Hugh County in uh, the 2023 version. He's played by Michael McKean in the movie. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, he is um, an FBI agent. Well, depending on which ending ending you go with. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And he's also a homosexual, again, mm-hmm. depending on which ending you go by. Right. Um, Mrs. Slash Solicitor Peacock. Mm-hmm. Originally, she is a stock grand dom character, middle-aged, attractive woman of dignity. In Clue Master Detective, she is Henrietta Peacock. And Henrietta is an elderly ornithologist specializing in birds of prey. Mm. She wanted Body to turn his manor into a bird sanctuary. Uh, again, that's in Clue Master Detective. In the musical, she is Body's wife. He's her sixth husband. And okay. she's having an affair with Colonel Mustard. She's also been Patricia Peacock, an English socialite and former actress who left England after being involved in a love triangle with two politicians. That's in the 2002 version. And Solicitor Peacock, a successful attorney being blackmailed by body for tampering with witness testimonies in the 2023 version. Mm-hmm. She's played, again, expertly by Eileen Brennan in the movie. Mm-hmm. Professor Plum, one of the OG characters, right, yeah. has been around since since the patent. A stock, absent-minded professor character, Edgar Plum, oh, has also been Edgar Plum, a shady archaeologist in Clue Master Detective, an archaeologist and Egyptologist fired for allegations of plagiarism in the 2002 edition, played by Christopher Lloyd in the movie. Plum is a disgraced former psychiatrist who lost his license for having an affair with one of his patients. Uh The Guardian article is from 2008, and it talks about a new updated version of the game that would be released. The article came out, I think, like December 8th of Uh 2012, and it talks about that a new version of the game is being released just in time for Christmas of that same year. And it's says that the new updated version strays from the original game and not for the better. (laughs) It says, (laughs) this is again, a quote from the Guardian article. In the new Cluedo, the murder takes place in a shiny Hollywood residence instead of a gloomy English mansion. The characters have been updated. Colonel Mustard is now Jack Mustard, a famous football player. Miss Scarlet is Cassandra Scarlet, the hottest star on the movie scene. Professor Plum is Victor Plum, a billionaire video game designer whose catchphrase is finally i am the cool crowd instead of lead piping we have a baseball bat instead of the billiard room there is a spa instead of the cellar a swimming pool the gun is fitted with a silencer okay i I know i felt the same way it just tried too hard to update it Yeah, and that's the thing is that the new version's co-designer felt that the game needed updating so that the kids of the parents who had grown up playing the original game would have like an access point to it, right? And they'd be able to connect to it. But the Guardian is like, that's kind of bullshit. Like the parents didn't know the world of the original game either. Like it's 
always been something that's old fashioned. The parents didn't live in a world of like gothic mansions full of right. like cooks and colonels. If it's like a post-World War II thing, then it's inspired by Agatha Christie. Like, we're already... Yeah, exactly. The original board game, which I will I will post a picture on social media of the original 1949 edition Cluedo board game and the the cards. But the, the design was decidedly 1930s art deco. Hmm, interesting. Uh, again, from The Guardian, the Englishness and datedness of the original game are intrinsic to its appeal. Pluto has always had a nostalgic aura, blurrily reminiscent of creepy old houses and buried family secrets. Our fascination with the country house mystery is rooted in a Victorian obsession with reputation and domestic privacy. Right. Well, it all kind of feels like it's all kind of drawing from like gothic fiction too. So. Yeah, right. Like spooky old house. murder takes place so like i don't want like a spa in a fucking video game designer yeah and i don't want i don't want like a fucking tech bro in there with his like fucking like catchphrase or whatever yeah like um, like i hope you die So yeah, so the 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 game was always like I said sort of steeped in this nostalgia, right? right? And I actually think that that is something that the movie did really really well. Oh yeah. The movie, now we can talk about it. It's released in 1985 and the movie is set at a secluded New England mansion where six guests have been ominously invited to dinner. Mm-hmm. I cannot get into everything about the movie. That is absolutely an episode in and of itself. But there are a few interesting things about okay. it. The movie was inspired by the nature of the board game. And it featured, Scotty, I think, I know that you know this, mm-hmm. um, but perhaps some of our younger listeners do not. It featured three different endings that were played at different theaters. Mm-hmm. And so I remember back in the day, this is how you had to do it. When you wanted to go to a movie, you had to look in the newspaper to see the movie ads and see what time. Yeah. Yeah. To see what time movies, just globally speaking, you had to look in the newspaper, (laughs) look up your movie, see what theater it was at and what time it started. And then Mm -hmm. you'd go there. But for Clue, I remember, I think it was a general cinema Mm -hmm. that is, was down at the end of Osuna. I remember, I remember looking at the ad for that and seeing that ending A was going to be playing at like Four Hills and ending B was going Mm -hmm. to be playing at this other place and ending C was going to be played at this other theater. So you would go watch. I was just going to say, I remember in Los Alamos, it's like the only played one ending so like to see the other endings you had to like go down to santa fe are you serious yeah because like uh well because we only had one movie theater so it's just like they were like well we got this ending how long is the drive from los alamos to santa fe like well a little under an hour probably Mm-mm. yeah <laughs> no. i just remember i want to say i remember my brother and my sister-in-law like making a special trip because they wanted to see one of the other endings down there. Yeah, no, and I know a lot of places were like, "We're not doing that. We're all just we're just going to play all three endings mm-hmm. like with the movie." But a lot of places, theaters in Albuquerque did. It was like mm-hmm. A is here, B is here, C is here, and so mm-hmm. you would have like a set number of time in between the endings to get to whatever theater was playing the next ending. I think that this is such an ambitious experiment, mm-hmm. and and I remember. 
I would have been probably, I would have been six when this movie came out. And Mm -hmm. I remember wishing that I was old enough to like go to the movies by myself so that I could race around the city to see the different endings. Mm. Like I just, I thought, and that's where my like weird immersive experimental theater like <laughs> beginnings. That's my that's my villain origin story right there. <laughs> but I was like, I thought I just thought it was I thought it was the coolest thing. And I mm. really do think that it was a really, really ambitious experiment. And I just I think that it's it was before its time. Yeah. Honestly. I do know, like I remember that that was going on, but I never actually saw the movie until it was on video and then it was like all of them together. Yeah. Yeah. I will also say that you didn't have to buy tickets for the subsequent endings. You would go and you would show your original ticket mm-hmm. and then you'd walk into the theater because it was they were just showing you the endings. Ugh, I just, I think it was so cool. <laughs> but- Moving on. Okay, so in the movie, the cast of characters is expanded beyond the six game characters. So that's Colonel Mustard, Peacock, Scarlet, White, Plum, and Green. Uh, And they are expanded to include Wadsworth, the butler, who is played by Tim Curry, Mm -hmm. Yvette, the French maid, played by Colleen Camp, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Ho, the cook, played by Kelly Nakahara, the inspector, who's played by Howard Hessman, that is an uncredited appearance, Mm -hmm. Uh, the cop, played by Bill Henderson, the motorist, Jeffrey Kramer, and the singing telegram girl, played by Jane Weedlin of the Go-Go's. Oh, that's right. That was her. Yeah. 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 Jonathan Lynn and John Landis co-wrote the script and Lynn directed. The movie got really mixed reviews and it didn't do particularly well at the box office, but Mm -hmm. it has since become a cult classic as it should. I like it is. I love this movie. I just watched it again in preparation for this. It is my number one fall movie. Like Mm. the second this temperature starts to change out of summer, I'm like, it's time for Clue. Let's do this. That's interesting because like to go back to us talking about like holiday movies and we Mm -hmm. talked about Knives Out as a Thanksgiving movie. Like there's something about Knives Out that feels very Clue-ish. Like it's like, And I think that's... Of the same sensibility in some ways. Yes. And I think if Clue with the same exact cast, Mm -hmm. you know, if if that movie had just been able to be like suspended in amber and released now, I think it would do significantly better than it did when it was was originally released. I mean, it was just like a who's who of like some of the greatest comic actors of their day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody in that movie is at the top of their game. And apparently I was reading that they had so much fun on the set that Michael McKean would repeatedly yell out before they would start a take. He would yell out, something terrible has happened here because he was like, (laughs) we all love each other. We're having a great time. But at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, we're- We gotta make this. In the middle of a murder mystery movie. Right, right. You know? Yes, so- couple of other little bits of trivia. A fourth ending was filmed, but it was ultimately scrapped for not being any good. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, you know, running the risk with the three. Odds are. Already. And I read I read the description yeah. of the fourth ending, and I was like, yeah, no, it's 
We didn't need it. It, it wasn't good. Okay. <laughs> Carrie Fisher was originally cast as Miss Scarlet, but she had to drop out of the movie uh, so she could enter, enter treatment for drug mm. and alcohol abuse. Mm. Yeah, it was a little bit about that time period. Yeah. So Leslie Ann Warren was a last minute replacement. And I want to say when I say last minute, I mean last minute. Right. I think she got cast Within a days. week before they started filming. I mean, she's yeah. great in it, but I kind of lament the Carrie Fisher version that we never got. She like, she is great in it, but yeah, it would have been interesting to see the Carrie yeah. Fisher version. Like, yeah, I agree with you there. Leonard, an actor, okay, he's a British actor. I have not heard of him, uh, which doesn't mean anything. I just have, I haven't heard of him. His name is Leonard Rossiter. He was the first choice to play Wadsworth, but sadly he died before filming started. Mm. Rowan Atkinson was the second choice, but they thought that he wasn't well known enough at the time. Interesting. And I was like, that, what? No, but Mr. Bean didn't happen until the 90s. That's true. Yeah. So Curry was cast instead. And I... I don't want a version. Yeah. I don't want a version of that Tim Curry. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's, go back and watch the movie. And when they're all being like, this is what I'm being blackmailed for in the library or the study or wherever they are, mm-hmm. Mr. Green stands up and he's like, I work for the FBI and I'm almost, I'm also a homosexual. And it cuts back to Tim Curry and he's like shuffling papers and his eyes get so wide as he's like just absently shuffling the paper. It's just a, it's great. Commentary. If you have seen the movie and you've seen the movie a lot, go back and watch it and watch what the, what the other characters are doing while someone is speaking mm-hmm. case in point, one of the most quotable lines of the film. And it's a gift that I frequently use Mrs. White's flames speech completely improvised. That um, feels very Madeline Kahn improvised. Yes. if you go back and watch it it is very very fun to watch the actors that are in that scene with her martin mull is like directly behind her she comes down from the staircase Mm -hmm. and she's like yes i i hated her and that's when she starts the whole thing yes and if you watch carefully he is this close to cracking when (laughs) she starts with the flame flame flames And it like quickly cuts away because I've he had to have spoiled the take. He's he is so great in that movie, but again, it cuts to Tim Curry and he's like, like he's like mouth open, eyes wide, like kind of smiling. (laughs) And then I think it cuts to Christopher Lloyd as Professor Plum, who's just like, what is. what's happening yeah it is it is very very fun to watch what everybody else is doing when they are not like the focus of the scene in that movie Mm -hmm. around 2016 it was announced that the movie was getting a remake and that Mm -hmm. ryan reynolds was set to star i have seen nothing about what role ryan reynolds is supposed to be playing and there has not been any news about that movie since august of last year so i was probably stuck in turnaround or development hell somehow i have nothing against ryan reynolds i don't i mean i like Ryan. i don't think that he's right for this movie well because my fear is they want to make him wadsworth Uh uh-huh he's He's not right i just i don't need i don't need like ryan reynolds mugging 
for like Tim Curry mugging is one thing. I don't know. The thing is, is that Tim Curry mugs because he uses his face like he's not afraid of losing it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's the difference. Ryan Reynolds mugs because he's got this very sarcastic, very like ironic sense of humor. It's great as Deadpool. It's not. I would honestly be fine if they wanted to put Ryan Reynolds as Mr. Green. Yeah. I'd be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not mad about that. He'd work there. Yeah, but that's that's the only thing. So I asked Scotty to Uh take a moment. I said in prep, you know, for like for this, I want to talk about if we were to recast Clue. So it's the exact same script. Mm -hmm. We're making the movie. We're just putting some modern day actors into it. Okay. So Scotty, do you want to, do you want to start? Should we go character by character? Yeah, we'll go like me and the Back and forth. I do want to just say, I did not do all of the characters. Like I didn't do the cop and I didn't do the cook. Neither did I. I did, I did. I did the six, Wadsworth, Yvette, and Mr. Body. Same here. Okay. I'm actually going to start with Mr. Body. Okay. And again, just to talk about, so the way I was kind of thinking about it is I wanted actors that kind of felt like they sort of rhymed with actors from the original in some way. Because um, going with the idea that it's the same script and everything, I wanted right. like, people that have like a little bit of a similar persona. So as you said, Lee Ving in the original, he was a, he's a, was a punk singer, right? He's, I think he's still around. He is. He was the singer and guitarist for the band Fear, one of my okay. favorite punk bands. And I feel like, so if we're going with like, you know, we're going to cast this kind of against type punk guy as Mr. Body, I want to stick with like sort of someone who's got like kind of dangerous music kind of vibe, you know, but also who has some acting chops. So I'm saying Ice T for, for Mr. Body. That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was kind of going with like just my dream cast of who okay. I really think could like really nail these roles. So I would honestly like to see Chris Evans as Mr. Body. I mean, I can't argue with that. He he would be great. Yeah. Like ju- I think just funny enough, but also somebody that you could completely see being like, yes, I'm blackmailing all of you. Here are your weapons. Kill, kill like mm-hmm. kill the person now. Good luck. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I think like, Chris Evans from Knives Out bringing some of that energy into the Mr. Body role. Like, yeah. that works. That works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who's next? Mrs. Peacock. So, like you said, we had Eileen Brennan, who was like, uh-huh. you know, Eileen Brennan is just like, at the time was like, I mean, she was like a Broadway star and everything. And just she has this, she's funny, but she also has just this gravitas to her. She's good. She's, she's so good. So fucking good. When she starts screaming, maybe he was poisoned, and she's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I So I, I want, I want an actress who has again some of those same qualities of like you know a real almost grand dame kind of vibe, but also can mm-hmm. be funny. So I'm mm-hmm. with Viola Davis. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, very much so. My picks, I have two. Uh-huh. Allison Janney is my first. Oh, man. You beat me. You won that <laughs> round. <laughs> I think Allison Janney would, as, yeah. like, I just think too, and again, I don't know if this was on purpose, but when her, like, fascinator keeps flopping down and she's like. <laughs> yeah, no, you you won. You're right. I mean, Viola Davis would be great, but Allison Janney, she's the correct choice. Yes. But you said you had a second choice. Yes. I also would two very, very different Mrs. Peacocks. And I have these for a couple of them, right? So Allison Janney or Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, I could. Well, because Catherine O'Hara has a little bit of that Madeline Kahn kind of like, you know, both just like great 
comic actors both great improvisers like yes yeah i think yeah. again two very different mrs peacocks but i think that i think that both i think either would be would be fascinating they'd be great but now i want the allison janney version okay so. great okay she's just she's she's so tall too like it'd just mm-hmm. be funny yeah okay moving on wadsworth so as you said you have the great tim curry as wadsworth the butler i'm gonna go i'm gonna stick with the pennywise the clown theme and go with spill Skarsgård interesting he's got a little bit of that like otherworldly like i mean i wouldn't say like tim curry is otherworldly but there's a separateness to him from the other characters so if you put a bill Mm -hmm. skarsgård who's almost a little spooky and i'd really like to see bill skarsgård try comedy at some point i think he could be a good Mm. weird english butler character yeah for mine i went through like seven or eight different things and i kept finding people and being like nope shit nope sorry i gotta move it i gotta move it i wanted to stick with someone from the UK and somebody who, interestingly enough, Tim Curry was only 39 when they filmed Mm. Clue. I would have guessed that he was older. Yeah, because I would have thought he was... I mean, how old was he when they did Rocky Horror? Well, he, was a he had to have been fairly young. Yeah. yeah. But so my pick for Wadsworth, I think going in a different direction than yours, but my pick for Wadsworth is Matthew Rees from uh, The Americans and Perry Mason. No complaints there. That 100% would work. Yeah. I think that he would be, because the little bits of comedy that I've seen Matthew Rees do, I think he is an actor who... Because to me, the role of Wadsworth comes down to the un, absolutely unhinged energy that you have to mm-hmm. have to do all of the endings at the end. And I think mm-hmm. Matthew Reese is somebody who could like nail I could that. See that. That was a little bit what I was thinking with Bill Skarsgård, just because he's got some of that. He can bring some of the crazy energy you saw in it with Penny, his Pennywise. So. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. problem with Bill Skarsgård is he might just go too creepy. So in a way, I think Matthew Reeves, that's a good choice. Yeah. And I think could play really buttoned up, but would also be really, really great. Like clearly if you've watched Perry Mason does like disheveled very great, very well. Um, okay. Who do you got next? Okay. I'm going to jump uh, down to Yvette, the French maid. Great. I really want someone again, who's like got that kind of like can play kind of a cliche, sexy French maid, but also has some comic chops. So I went with uh, Ricky Lindholm from Garfunkel and Oates. Also, you've seen her in Knives Out. You've seen, she acts too. Who so is she in Knives Out? I don't remember exactly which character because it's not one of the major characters. She's like somebody's wife or something. But Okay. If you know Garfunkel and Oates, comedy, folk, duo, she's the blonde in Garfunkel. Okay. 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 Yeah. Again, mine is a very like A-list version. I'm aware of that. I'm fine with it. Let's go. It's all good. I... <laughs> <laughs> I had a re I also had a very hard time with Yvette because she's somebody who has to appear very sexy, but has to be absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I went with Florence Pugh. Oh, she she could be great. Yeah. I, I think she could be really great. I haven't seen her go like full comedy, but I think she Oh could my be God. Great. No, yeah. you have to we saw a little bit of it in whatever the Black Widow movie was. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then she gets a lot more of an opportunity to do that in the Hawkeye series. Okay, yeah. See, I haven't watched quite Hawkeye. funny. She's quite funny and she's very physical. So I think okay. she'd actually be right. really great. See, I wouldn't have thought and, of her because I don't associate her with that. But and she's good with accents. Mm, yeah. So I think she could, I think she would do great at doing like a very stereotypical French accent and then mm. 
Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. continue. Let's go. Let's keep it going. (laughs) Mrs. White. So as we said, I mean, I just, I absolutely love Madeline Kahn. You really need someone of like her stature and there's really not many except for like a Catherine O'Hara. So I'm going to go with Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. That's real good. (laughs) (laughs) Again, a different Mrs. White, Mm -hmm. but I think could be very funny. Uh, In Parks and Rec theme i have my choice for that is aubrey plaza Mm. because i think aubrey plaza like mrs white is very like she's very she's deadpan yes and she's she like maintains right Mm. a lot through the movie until she doesn't that's Um, very aubrey plaza (laughs) yeah that's a great choice yeah my other choice for that and again it would be a very different mrs white would be ali wong Mm. yeah yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, even one of those works. I think I was thinking Amy Poehler, like, she's, like, a little bit older. Bob O'Connell's a little bit older. Like, she just feels like she's got a little bit of that. But, like, where she could go wrong, and I think Aubrey Plaza could go right, is I think Amy Poehler might lean a little too much into snark. And, like, Aubrey Plaza can do snark, too, but she does. She's so good at the deadpan. So, so I interesting, think that could work really well. Interesting thing about this, too, because I was like, oh, Aubrey Plaza might be too young. Aubrey Plaza is... 39 and Madeline Kahn was 43 when she did blue. Yeah. And I think Amy Poehler's probably, I mean, she's probably Amy Poehler's 51. I was going to say she's got to be at least 50. So, okay. Professor Plum. So of course the great Christopher Lloyd, I struggled with this one a little bit. There's really not like a Christopher Lloyd equivalent today. So I'm going with Paul Giamatti. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Very funny, but also like Christopher Lloyd does a really good job of playing a very harmless lech in mm-hmm. Clue. Yeah. Like he is so <laughs> sleazy, but mm-hmm. in a way that you're, it, it never veers into rapey. It's always just like, this mm-hmm. guy just like doesn't have a, he's just, he's trying to get lucky. Right. He's shooting his shot where he can. Um, and that's a little bit where I was going with Paul Giamatti. The other one I kind of thought of that could have worked would be William H. Macy, but I just, he doesn't, quite feel right to me my choice for professor for professor plum is jeffrey wright oh he okay yeah again i think that's a great (laughs) i just keep thinking of when they draw lots and Mm -hmm. he gets he gets stuck with mrs peacock right no he gets stuck with mrs scarlet and he goes it's you and me honey bunch (laughs) mrs scarlet goes god it's and so Jeffy bothered. Wright's kind of pretty good at that, like blustery, like blah, 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 kind of, you know, like he could, <laughs> I think he could capture that pretty well. I think it'd be a lot of fun. No, nah, that's a great choice too. Okay. Okay. Next. Mr. Mr. Green. So Michael McKeon, I was really kind of leaning into, and this may be a little too obvious. I was leaning into the, cause like this may tip your hand in terms of the ending. Uh-huh. I was leaning into the whole FBI agent idea. I'm with Clark Drake. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Avengers, Marvel guy. Oh. I can't remember the character name. He's also the FBI agent on the West Coast. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. And like one thing you need from, sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say one thing you need from the the Mr. Green, if you're leaning into the way Michael McKean plays him, is he's an FBI agent, but also a little dopey. And I think Clark Gregg plays the like dopey secret agent pretty well. Yeah. Like he's even on the West Wing, he's like a little dopey when he's like freaked out to go into the Oval Office and stuff. Like, yeah. Yes. Okay. Again, mine, a very different one. But I would like to see Pedro Pascal as Mr. Green. 
Yeah, that he could work. He mm-hmm. brings like I think he could bring like because like when he reveals himself at the end is like I am the FBI. He's got that kind of like suave sort of thing. I think Pedro Pascal can do both. He he can really occupy both the goofy yes. and the like. Yes, I am an FBI agent. Yes, I'm in charge. Yep. Okay. okay. All right. My next one is like so painfully obvious that it's almost like eye-rollingly obvious this is for okay. colonel mustard played by martin mall and i've got to go with nick offerman <laughs> <laughs> who i feel like is our martin mall <laughs> today <laughs> nick offerman w- is is a is a great choice mm-hmm. yes very much a great choice <laughs> oh man i think i might like yours better than mine i think okay. this is the first time when i might i might give you give you yours instead give of mine but I would also like to see Oscar Isaac as Colonel Mustard because Oscar Isaac, when he is being silly, which he doesn't have a ton mm-hmm. of opportunity to do because he is so good looking. Um, <laughs> he is. I just saw just, your eyes almost to, roll into the back. Nobody of wants skull. to see him be like silly, but I think about him doing the, when they're talking about how he made his money and he's like, I got it all in the war after my mommy and daddy died. <laughs> and, <laughs> I very, but I think I think in this case I'm gonna have to give it to Nick Offerman. I think he would be absolutely incredible. Well, in you that. know, I think Oscar Isaac actually would also make. I mean, God, you could almost put Oscar Isaac in any of these. Like he'd make a good uh, Professor Plum. I think Oscar Isaac was make my first Mr. choice Green. for Oscar Isaac was my first choice for Mr. Body. He could be Mr. Body. He could be Wadsworth. I mean, he could frankly be any of the male characters in here. So yeah, it's a good you, choice. You, you can put him in a lot of places. Yeah. yeah. I just had, I was like, who is the most Martin Mulliest modern actor? And it's got to be Nick Offerman. And again, and watching it this time, I think the characters that I always sort of was like, I, you know, when I was little, I was very clearly like in love with Mrs. Scarlet because she was like, you know, she had that cool dress and she was clearly like very like sexy and, and desirable and all these things. So I paid a lot of, of attention to her. And then probably next was Mrs. White. And then I was just sort of like, okay, everybody else. Martin Mull is so good. in mm-hmm. He is so good in that movie everybody is this is i'm gonna take like privilege of the moment because like this will probably be the last time i ever get a chance to talk about martin mull on this podcast but like i've been a martin mull fan since like the early 80s because he did like he was on the sitcom soap which was like one of the first like it was like making fun of soap operas i think billy crystal was on that Uh uh-huh but then he did a spinoff, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was like Beachwood Tonight or something that was like a fake talk show, and his character from Soap was hosting this talk show, and it was so weird. <laughs> like, it was such a strange show. Hey, everyone, this is Scotty breaking in after the fact with a quick little fact check. So I was actually incorrect about this. Uh, Martin Mull was not on the show Soap. He was on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And the spinoff that I'm talking about that was the fake talk show was called Fernwood Tonight. So, yeah, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman was similar to Soap. It was another, like, satirical sitcom making fun of a soap opera. So that's why I got those confused. But anyway, I just wanted to clear that up. But then I even remember him as, like, he was Roseanne's boss, the original Roseanne back in the day. Oh, yeah. He's just one of those actors who's always been around. I've always loved him. I think he kind of reminds me of my dad a little bit. So, like. Oh, okay. Um, Okay, I'm looking up what he was in. Okay, our last is 
Miss Scarlet. So another one that may be like almost too obvious, and I'd have to wonder, again, I've never seen her really lean into the silly, so I'd be curious how she would do. Uh, but I went with Jessica Chastain. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to see. I mean, I'm sure she can do it. She's just kind of made a career of doing like Oscar bait stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see her break out of that and do Clue. <laughs> and do Clue. Yeah. Okay, my, again, I have two choices for Miss Scarlet. My first is Catherine Hahn. Oh, yeah, she'd be great. Yeah, I think that she, I, I think she'd be really great. And then in another, equally great, but I think a very different Mrs. Scarlet would be Carrie Washington. Yeah, I could see that. Because I think like Carrie Washington, I think has, and is also somebody who again is very funny, but she's, she's such a powerhouse that people tend to put her in. Well, you could really bring some of her energy that she brings into scandal, but like yes. twist it and make it silly and funny. Like, yeah. I think that, I think she'd be, I think she'd really be great. Okay. Yeah. Yay. That was fun. Thanks for, thanks fun. for playing along. Okay. <laughs> I was, I had fun coming up with my list. Yeah, me too. I also, an honorable mention, I will say for Mrs. Peacock for me was Meryl Streep because <laughs> when Meryl yeah. Streep lets herself go real silly, she's very fun. She's very funny. Yeah. But I still think Alice and Janney is probably the correct. I, she's the correct answer. Like She's the correct answer. I think between our lists, like I could, I think we both did a good job of picking like interesting choices. Yes. But I think you won that round with Alice and Janney. I think that's like the one that it's like, there's really no question. Yeah, it's it's a good time. Okay, to wrap this up, because I'm not quite done with my story yet, <laughs> Pratt sold the rights to the game in the 1950s for 5,000 pounds. I did see some people be like, oh my God, 5,000 pounds, that's nothing. It is roughly 115,000 pounds in today's money. So it's not like the guy got uh, nothing. Not jump change, yeah. Right. He stated in the Guardian article that he did get residuals from the game until the patent lapsed, at which mm. time the payment stopped. Yeah. When Waddington's tried to track Pratt down in the mid-90s for the game's 50th anniversary celebration, they found that he had died in 1994. Mm. In 1990, a reporter from the Birmingham Evening Mail caught up with him in his home and asked him how he felt about losing the rights to the game. He said, quote, we don't mind, you know, it had been one of life's bonuses. A great deal of fun went into it, so why grumble? Mm. Pratt's gravestone in Bromsgrove Cemetery describes him as the inventor of Cluedo, and a very dear father. Cluedo slash Clue went on to be the murder mystery game. It is the second most popular board game in the world. Over 150 million sets have been sold since 1949. And considering that he made a game to pass the hours while his hometown was being blitzed, that's a pretty fantastic legacy. And that is the history of the most popular murder mystery game of all time. Wow, that's a great one. That's a great story. I, yeah. I think I'm going to stay up late tonight and watch Clue because it's been you a while it. since I've seen it's it. So- <laughs> just opening job. right away with the joke of wadsworth stepping in dog shit and then the first however many people like looking at their shoes yeah. to, like see who yeah. and mrs peacock just dinner table yeah go and watch it and start like paying attention to the care like the, the characters who aren't speaking. Mm-hmm. There is some fan fantastic stuff, and it's I feel like everybody was at the height of their game in that movie. Oh, everybody absolutely. was firing on all c- cylinders. Yeah, it's really a bummer that it, it. I remember that it was kind of a flop at the time, but I love that it, it really has like got the second life. As a, I feel like it's one of those movies that kind of flopped in the movie theater, and then like cable between cable and home video, it just really like never. Yeah. Went away. 
I didn't have a sleepover when I was growing up that didn't involve us watching Clue. Because Mm -hmm. to me, at that age when I was growing up, Clue was the perfect scary movie. Mm, Like it had a a couple of, you know, the murder mystery. And there was a couple of things that were like really kind of creepy. But it wasn't anything that was going to give us nightmares. So I watched that movie all the time and i i have not stopped watching it since so i put it kind of on the same level for me as like ghostbusters in that you know from Mm. i mean they're within a year of each other and again ghostbusters just some of the great comic actors all i mean everyone down to annie potts and rick marinas and that just all firing on all cylinders bouncing off each other perfectly and like yeah Yeah. for all you youngs if you haven't enjoyed these 80s comedies like go back please go check them out clue is available on amazon prime uh you can watch it for free on amazon prime and it might be on netflix Mm, yeah it's on something uh especially right now as we're as we're moving into spooky season yeah it's a good like start of the fall movie very much so we have talked long enough (laughs) <laughs> it's time for us to go to bed. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, if you've hit this point on this and you've been listening to us on Spotify, take a moment to give us a five-star review. Go ahead and rate and review uh, on any of the platforms that you're listening to us on. We love hearing from you all. Leave us some comments on our uh, social media posts. We really, really, really do love hearing from you all. And have a, a, you know, a wonderful beginning of your spooky season. And if you were in the Abingdon, Virginia area, please go check out Barter Theater doing Clue. I know that's going to be a very very good time and until then stay weird stay curious and we'll see you next time bye 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 so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing